This is the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of PlantYourself.com and the Big Change Program with Josh Lajani. This podcast is part of my mission to help you live a serene and satisfying life. A couple of things before we get to today's interview. First thing is, I am looking to take the Big Change Program into corporate settings to be able to reach more people, to be able to reach larger groups of people, and to have groups self-reinforce. Josh and I are partnering with WellStart Health. WellStart Health is a startup that includes a digital presence and coaching and supervision by doctors and nutritionists. What really drew us to WellStart was two things. One is, unlike the other wellness programs out there, Um, This is evidence-based, which means plant-based. And second, they are not billing themselves as wellness, but as disease prevention and reversal. And we all know the power of a whole food plant-based diet and good exercise movement protocol and all that to significantly impact uh, disease progression in a way that, you know, the typical wellness program of counting your steps and having the uh, breast of chicken without the skin is simply not going to achieve. So if you uh, are in a position to talk to us about bringing us into your organization, whether it's corporate or school or municipal or government or whatever, nonprofit, uh, I'd love to talk to you. You can reach out at hj at plantyourself.com. Or if you know someone who is in a position to bring us in, we want to run some pilot studies and show that we can significantly move the needle on healthcare costs and on improving the health and productivity of employees. While everyone's individual efforts at change and bringing about a plant-based world are important and admirable, I think the truth is we've got to go bigger. We've got to leverage the structures of power that already exist to really make a difference. So if you're able to help out, hj at plantyourself.com, drop me a line. I would love to hear from you. Second thing is, got a new report for your reading pleasure, and it's called The Cheat Day Blues. And there's so many people who are touting the cheat day, this idea that if you eat really well during the week, you can, quote, afford a day off, a day where you can indulge yourself, where you can lower your standards. And the idea is, you know, nobody wants to be restricted. Nobody wants to look at the rest of their life and say, well, I'll never be happy with my food again. I'm always going to be eating, you know, twigs and leaves or however people think about it to themselves. And so the idea of a cheat day is something that in the future that can take the pressure off and allow you to be good on all the other days. And research shows that this is a terrible idea. And so the cheat day blues report explains why it's a terrible idea, why we like the idea, and most importantly, uh, three strategies that can replace it three ways to navigate between rigid compliance and shoot yourself in the foot hedonistic indulgence. So if you like it, just go to plantyourself.com slash cheat day. That's one word, C-H-E-A-T-D-A-Y, plantyourself.com slash cheat day, and you can download it. And if you're not already a subscriber to the Big Change Bulldog, my weekly-ish newsletter, you will be. And if you are already, nothing else will change except that you'll get a copy of the Cheat Day Blues. Okay, on to today's interview with Elizabeth Winings. Elizabeth is a doctor of nursing practice at Nemours Children's Specialty Care and Wolfson's Children's Hospital in Jacksonville, Florida, 
where she specializes in working with kids, children, and teens who receive mental health care in an acute inpatient setting. And she focuses on holistic, therapeutic, and lifestyle approaches toward wellness. And ironically, it was Dr. Wining's early exposure to nursing care in the ER and on a surgical unit, two places where prevention is simply not part of the lexicon, that sparked her abiding interest in prevention through lifestyle. Dr. Winings is also a voice for plant-based lifestyle medicine, where she interned at True, True North Health Center and is a popular speaker at Engine 2 events and immersions. That's where we met at Plant Stock 2017, where she was slated to give a talk on theories of behavior change, which, you know, I nerd out on. But because of a scheduling crunch, she couldn't do the whole presentation. In fact, she just gave a four-minute overview of a single issue And that was compelling enough for me to selfishly ask her onto the podcast to share the rest of her insights. And we do cover this theory, the stages of change theory to actual health change efforts, but we also strolled into lots of other topics of mutual fascination, including the link between diet and depression and the constraints on really, really good caring people in the healthcare field that keep them from addressing the lifestyle root causes of most of our ailments. Dr. Winings is a bright, articulate, passionate voice for lifestyle changes, for plant-based diets, and for the healing of our bodies and our minds. And so without further ado, Elizabeth Winings, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Thank you so much. So I wanted to talk to you largely because we chatted at Plant Stock up in mm-hmm. um, Claverack, New York, and I was really excited about the presentation you were going to give. And then because of scheduling and tightness and all that, you only could do like a five-minute uh, teaser for it. So yeah. I, I felt I felt gypped. And I because I have a podcast, I could solve that problem by asking you to come and, and teach me one-on-one. Um, yes. So before we get to that, I would love for you to just introduce yourself to, to listeners and say mm-hmm. you know, what, what you do and where. Okay. Well, thank you for the opportunity to be on your podcast. Um, It's an honor. And I'm Elizabeth Winings. I am a doctor of nursing practice, which means I'm licensed as a nurse practitioner, and I function in that role. And I currently practice in Jacksonville, Florida, in mental health. So my national certification is in psychiatric mental health. And I currently work primarily with children and families, but I'm certified across the lifespan. So I do also have experience working with adults and the geriatric population. Um, And then my doctoral research was on the relationship between diet and depression in adult women. And in the process of doing that, I also studied a lot about the relationship between diet and lifestyle and mental health in general. But for the sake of graduating on time, I had to narrow down that topic to something that would be reasonable um, to accomplish. So that's kind of um, my professional and academic world. But um, then personally, throughout all of that, I became plant-based, which is where I have the opportunity now to continue exploring those relationships and specializing in lifestyle medicine. Mm -hmm. So we'll we'll unpack a lot of that. But first, um, I'm always curious how people became plant-based because it's, it's still 
a kind of a, a weird thing. It's not something that you sort of default into. So what's, what's your story? Yeah. Well, um, my story is that I graduated from my baccalaureate nursing program and I accepted a position in the VA Veteran Affairs um, Residency Program in Gainesville, Florida. And it was a wonderful experience. And I worked on a surgical floor. So I worked primarily with patients who were healthy enough to have surgery, but sick enough that they required surgery of some sort. And um, throughout my time in that program, I interacted with a lot of individuals with heart disease and diabetes. And we're having very severe consequences of these illnesses, including diabetics, but ulcers, um, infections that weren't healing. And it really confused me that there were severe consequences happening and they were not making the recommended changes to their diet or lifestyle. And there were three patients specifically that I had the privilege of working with as their nurse for subsequent amputations. And so that was really distressing um, as a nurse because I didn't really feel like I was helping them when they're coming in with 10 toes and leaving with nine and then we're taking away a foot or a leg. Um, And so I started having conversations with the surgeons and they didn't appreciate my conversations very much because their role was to do surgery and make sure that it was successful and there was an infection and then refer those patients to nutritional counseling and physical therapy and discharge them. In other words, they they were operating from their, you know, reductionist view of it's successful if I take off a foot and there's no infection and I don't, Mm -hmm. you know, like that was a successful operation. And when you um, zoom out a little bit, you say, well, yeah, but it's it's unsuccessful that it needed to happen in the first place. Sure. Absolutely. And what other things could we address while we have their attention? while they're in the hospital. And so I had a dietitian on the floor who recommended I read Omnivore's Dilemma and watch Forks Over Knives, which was enough to um, pique my interest. And then I just started reading um, all of the books, The China Study, uh, Prevent and Reverse Heart Disease, And then I started looking in the academic literature and seeing what connections were there. And at that time, I wasn't sure what direction I wanted to go for my um, nurse practitioner specialty. I was very, very interested in staying in the acute care setting in the hospital and wanted to go into emergency medicine, which I did later work in the emergency room for two years in a different hospital And that also was a great experience, but it's very disheartening when you see how many individuals are coming into the emergency room in crisis. And our system is doing, I believe, the best that it can to sustain um, a disease model. And and not that that it's perpetuating on purpose diseases, but I think that the problem is so large that we're struggling to wrap our arms around a prevention model that's pre- that is going to be effective at preventing not only mental illnesses, but physical illnesses. Mm-hmm. Um, well, what, what do you that, mean by that when you say the system is doing the best that it can to sustain a disease model? Yeah, well, 
like sustain what is currently happening. So we look at um, symptoms and then we diagnose something and we're not necessarily diagnosing a health or a wellness disease. You know, it's a disease. There's something off in our body and our mind. And so we see symptoms and then we say, this is the diagnosis and here's the recommended treatment. And I think that we're missing the question, well, if these are the symptoms, how could we prevent them from happening again? Even if we have to use diagnoses and or procedures and or medications for our current healthcare model based on reimbursement and insurance and all of those things, there's a lot of room for improvement. But I think if we could expand the conversation in modern medicine to say, what are we doing to prevent another episode or to decrease the severity of this disease in this person's life? Um, the, there's a lot of constraints on providers in modern medicine, particularly like I was saying in surgery, you are only paid for certain things based on documentation and insurance requirements and um, days of admission in the hospital are um, limited based on those types of constraints, as well as in the emergency room. A lot of codes are fee um, or fees, sorry, are based on time. And so there is this incentive to see patients quickly and to do the best that you can in the least amount of time. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. And I guess your your surgeons who are lopping off toes and feet and legs they got paid sort of piecemeal, right? Almost assembly line fashion. Yeah. And I'm not completely up to date on those types of insurance reimbursement policies, but I do know that their scope of practice is based on providing those services. Mm-hmm. And so if the system does not incentivize a wider scope of practice or educate those providers to do something different, they're doing the best that they can with the education and resources that they have. Right. So I want to, I want to get back to that point for around, around you and Mm -hmm. you know, you're clear. I've, I've read your resume. It's like, you know, really long and impressive. You're clearly a researcher and Mm -hmm. I'm, you know, just the little bit that I know you, I'm sure from day one of, of, uh, you know, baccalaureate in nursing and, and all your advanced programs, you've really, worked hard to learn everything. What was it like for you to discover in these sort of trade paperbacks, these mm-hmm. profound truths about health that you had not encountered in your entire uh, nursing education? It was exciting and scary at the same time, because I had this idea that I wanted to work in acute care and in modern medicine. And then I was doing that And I felt really disheartened, like I wasn't a good nurse because the patient's outcomes weren't ideal. And so it was hope, it gave me hope to read certain things and to know, oh, I'm not doing everything or potentially there's another body of knowledge that is growing and I can learn more about and I can contribute to going back to school and pursuing an advanced degree. 
So did you talk to to colleagues and professors and former you know students? Yes. Like what, what, mm-hmm. what was that yeah. like? Yeah, um, interesting. So so while I worked at the VA on the surgical unit, one of the benefits of being in a residency program is I had the opportunity to shadow other environments, which is part of where I got exposed to the mental health care in the VA system. And I met some really wonderful providers, and I realized that they had the most time with their patients. And they were able to talk to people about how they were feeling and what was going on before they came to the hospital. And it was a new experience for me. And so I thought I would contact one of my old professors from the University of Florida, go Gators, Florida Georgia weekend here in Jacksonville. (laughs) Um, Anyways, so um, Dr. Schneider, who is phenomenal, and she's was the director of my um, undergraduate mental health program at US for nursing. And I told her, we need to get our undergraduate students to do a rotation here and learn more about this and incorporate preventative education in the undergraduate program. And her reply to me was, you should go into mental health and you should do that. And Hmm. And I was like, no, I'm like figuring out this nutrition thing. I want to work in the hospital. And I couldn't marry the two in my mind yet. And so over the course of a year and three different conversations with Dr. Snyder, I realized I really wanted to learn more about how people think, how we are motivated and how I could help people better understand themselves and the choices that they're making. So then I went into mental health. And that was an interesting experience, mostly positive. Um, Interesting in the fact that talking about nutrition while you're going through an advanced degree program for mental health it always comes across as a tangent or not relevant right now because we're talking about depression or we're talking about a manic episode. We're doing a case presentation. Why are you asking us about the patient's diet? Um, But in all reality, as mental health providers, we do pay a lot of attention to someone's lifestyle and their behaviors and their relationships with others, their relationship with themselves. And so I think that throughout the progression of my program, my passion for nutrition and my awareness of how to incorporate that into mental health care became more clear. And I realized that it didn't have to be one or the other, that they really are complementary. And it's just that the system hasn't supported that in a very meaningful way yet but i'm hopeful well, so it, it's sort of like uh, you know someone's being wheeled in for an amputation it's not the time to talk to them about broccoli yes <laughs> right and yeah. so when someone's having a manic episode or an anxiety attack it's not the moment to talk to them about quinoa but sure yes absolutely. So, wh- so being mindful that 
those things can be relevant and we can address the current crisis and current issue and we'll keep it on the table. Like we're going to talk about this eventually, but we're going to meet your need in this moment. Right. So it's clear to me how, you know, you can prevent, you know, diabetic neuropathy and amputation through diet, um, you know, heart disease, stroke, even cancer. There's real, there's real good evidence for those physical things. Mm-hmm. Convince, convince me that there's a relationship between mental health and diet and nutrition, because part, part of me is, is feeling very reductionist. Like, you know, your mental health is a process, is a product of your thinking, and so mm-hmm. what does, what does um, you know, vitamin B6 and beta carotene have to do with that? Well, you chose well in your questioning because actually vitamin B6 is a key nutrient in our body's uh, formation of our serotonin and the process that goes from the precursor to serotonin tryptophan converting to serotonin within the brain. So B6 is actually incredibly important uh, in your body's mental health. Um, can, can, can I just say that I just pulled that yeah. out of a hat? I had. <laughs> I know. But I'm I not that smart. The first one you picked. Well, it was great. So, um, but in, in all seriousness, there is not enough data yet because there's not enough people wanting to do that research. But what I can tell you is in my research, which, like I said, was limited to depression in adult women, but I reviewed over 700 research studies trying to find the ones that would meet my inclusion criteria for my my work. And what there is in our current literature is a relationship between um, low levels of vitamin D and increased levels of depression and anxiety. There's also evidence supporting if you have an imbalance in your, in your omega-3 fatty acid to your omega-6 fatty acid. If the omega-6 fatty acid is high, which in most Americans it is, um, that predisposes you for a higher level of depression or anxiety. And so vitamin D, oh, we already said vitamin B6. That's also important. And then what's fascinating is most of the studies would compare diet to a psychotropic medication or a vegetarian diet to a fish and or chicken and then a red meat. And so I did not come across any literature that met my inclusion criteria that looked at a vegan or plant-based diet. The closest I could get to that was a, a vegetarian diet. But the further you get away from processed foods and diets that are high in meat, the lower your levels of depression and anxiety are. And were these um, correlational studies so they could kind of go either way? Like, you know, happier people don't eat animals or happier people are more, you know, educated and more aware or happier people live in, you know, hipper urban environments and are more likely to go to co-ops? No, it was more of longitudinal. The ones that I used for my doctoral paper were longitudinal and they were using measures like HAMD or the PHQ-9 measures of depression. Gotcha. So this this was... 
This was it's it's, it's preliminary, but it's it's sort of suggestive. Correct. Right. So, so probably yeah. probably where where heart disease and diet research was in the fifties and sixties. Potentially, yes. So there are people asking the questions and doing some research, but the challenge is that there's not enough to have a statistical weight behind it where I could say this is new data that I could say to you. What I can say is that there is a correlation. So, yes, I guess it is correlative when you look at the ones that I reviewed. Because, I mean, the reason I'm asking is that, I, I just saw last week a study came across my desk um, that basically the, 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 the media headline is vegetarians more prone to depression. And, oh, yeah. That was funded by, um, I don't know that I saw the same one as you, but so my current, um, one of the physicians I work with likes to send me articles that he comes across and he sent me something similar to that. But it was funded, the one I re- saw, by... Um, a meat and dairy association. Right. <laughs> so this I will... can't take that as non-biased research. Right. This was a National Institute of Health study of like 9,600 men who, interestingly, the depression scale that was used for this 9,600 men was a, uh, a prenatal depression scale. Was this in Australia? I think that's the study I read. Uh, I'm looking at it. No, this was UK. Oh, the UK. Okay. I think there there was an Australia one, but uh, I mean, it's 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 amazing how poorly designed some of these studies are. Yes. And and I imagine even the studies that you're citing, like the you know, again, we're we're just in in the infancy of research in mm-hmm. in these areas. Mm-hmm. So, so if it's if it's sort of tent trending and inconclusive, um, you know, there's always sort of case studies, anecdotes, people making changes. Like, how convinced are you that there's a real connection between diet and mental health? Let's let, let's let's forget about you know proving it to a p of 0.05 or anything like that. Yeah. But just you know, in your gut, from what you've experienced and seen, what what can you sort of say? So, so what I can say is that. I personally, in my life, am 100% convinced based on my experiences in transitioning from a standard American diet to a plant-based lifestyle. Although, when I think about the general population, depression and anxiety or other mental health illnesses can be based on a history of trauma, based on a genetic predisposition to experiencing mental illness. So, is changing your diet and lifestyle going to cure mental illness? I highly doubt it. But could it significantly improve someone's life experience and reduce their symptoms or the severity of their mental illness? Absolutely. I I firmly believe that. And I also think it's important that when we talk about mental illness or physical illness, that we keep in mind that we're all human right? We're so desperately human and we're complex beings. And so we crave value, meaning. And so when we're validated that we have value and meaning in relationships and in society and in our jobs, that also can improve our quality of life. And so 
I think having a healthy diet and lifestyle exposes you to more of those things, like community of people who are also pursuing health and wellness. That's in my experience too. Yeah. And so something that I think about is when you, when you sort of take a step back from our society and, you know, look at it as if a Martian might or someone who's not (laughs) part of it, it's, it's pretty messed up. And like, it's, it's kind of cool that anyone has what we might consider mental health within this society. And I think one of the things that, you know, the people that you and I meet who have gone plant-based is in some sense, we've opted out of a significant part of those assumptions. And maybe, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe we're just trying to create this little more compassionate, more connected micro culture in which it's simply possible to be more steady and sane. Mm-hmm. Maybe. And, and I do think that most of the individuals that I meet in the plant-based movement and at these events are very intentional about how they're looking at their life currently and, and they're being mindful and they're making plans for their future. And I think that our world is really exhausting right now and we're constantly under pressure, whether that be personally or based on, you know, having a partner or children or a job, you know, there's a lot um, that goes into our current culture. And so I think when you take a step and start being mindful in one area of your life, it influences the other areas of your life. And um, I think that's a common word that I hear in the plant-based community is mindfulness. And that's really powerful. Yeah. I just had uh, Lanny Mulrath on the podcast uh, a couple of weeks ago, just came out with the book, the mindful vegan. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she pointed out like those two words don't seem to go together. And in her mind, they're almost synonymous. Like if you're a mindful person in the world, yeah. you have to eat a certain way. Sure. Sure. I think we're hearing a lot more of that, especially having a, an awareness or conscious behavior when you look at the environment and the ways that animals are being produced and factory farms and all those things. And there's an increased consciousness, whether you're coming at eating less animals and more fruits and vegetables from a health motivation or an environmental motivation, I think there is an increased mindfulness from both viewpoints. Gotcha. So yeah. you said earlier, you said earlier that you went into um, the mental health part, partly because you were really interested in human motivation. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's, maybe we could, we could transition to that, uh, to that talk okay. that uh, I was so greedy to, to hear. Um, yeah. Like what's, what's, what did you learn about, you know, how humans are motivated and, may, and maybe what was missing in the clinical environments, um, mm. like what, what, you know, what, what, what are we doing that doesn't work? Cause I'm sure there's a lot of stuff that just is like intuitively, like just, you know, let me just tell that person what to do. And if they don't do it, let me just tell them again louder versus right. what, what, what you've discovered through research and through practice. That is a wonderful complex question. So, <laughs> Um, the, the talk that I was going to give at plant stock and I was able to do a brief, um, 
form of it, was really something to introduce the concept of stages of behavior change. That, like you said, if you tell someone to do something, they might not do it the first time. So how do you continue to interact with individuals in a way that is meaningful, not judgmental, and motivational? And I think there are a lot of ways to approach this. But for the sake of how I wanted to interact with the group at PlantStock, not knowing where everyone is coming from, not knowing, you know, what pre-assumptions we had about plant-based nutrition or themselves or this event. The goal was to meet them where they're at and say, I have no expectation of you. And, and I approach my patients in the same way. I'm hopeful that they are going to be open-minded and want to engage in health behaviors. But the reality is not all people are in a mental health or a mental space where they're ready to accept new information and apply it. And so the stages of change, I really appreciate because it includes this pre-contemplation stage where you may or may not have awareness that you have a behavior you should start to work on. And so it moves through pre-contemplation to contemplation. So this is where you're starting to have some awareness that maybe something in your life should change. And then there's a preparation stage. So that's saying, okay, I've got some awareness. I'm starting to have some motivation to make changes. So now you're gathering data or information or creating support network because you're really motivated to do something. And then you have an action stage. And so that means that you're actually putting forth effort and making change and challenging a behavior. And once you have been successfully implementing a behavior in the action stage for anywhere from, I personally think it's three to six months, but depending on the theory or who it is, they might say shorter or longer, but you can transition into what is called maintenance. And so maintenance means this is a behavior that you've now incorporated into who you are and how you operate. The stages are circular, so it's not linear, which means that you may go through them fairly quickly and get to an action or maintenance stage faster than others, and you can relapse, for lack of a better word. I know that's um, used a lot in addiction and recovery, but the idea of going back to your old behavior. So this model is used a lot with health behaviors, and I think that eating is a health behavior. So um, I really think that it's applicable when you're looking at the way that you interact with food and the relationship you have with it and what changes you would want to make. So I was really hopeful at Plantstock to say, and and that is what I said, try and identify where you think you are. Because if we don't have awareness that there's a behavior that we need to change or that we're potentially putting ourselves at risk of serious consequences, we're just going to continue with our current behaviors. Mm -hmm. So is this a theory like, um, you know, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's 
stages of of grief it's it's, it's descriptive mm-hmm. of what people do or is it more prescriptive like this is what you should do even though most people don't actually do it this way no it is this is a typical pattern of behaviors and stages that you go through as you approach change okay cuz cuz i see a lot of people sort of i mean the one thing i think people don't do is the preparation <laughs> Right. Mm-hmm. So they'll go from right. contemplation to action and they don't gather data and they don't plan it out and they don't enlist a support network. And and so they never make it to maintenance because mm-hmm. they 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 fail from lack of planning. They think they, they, they view behavior change as like a, a light switch. You can just flip and it's done. Mm-hmm. So do, do you like does the models think that like people actually, you know, do the, enough preparation or the right preparation or is it just in in certain domains that we don't like i could see myself doing preparation for like learning how to play guitar or Mm -hmm. you know driving stick shift like i would probably spend a lot of time researching stuff but around around health behaviors i see so many people like oh i joined a gym sure sure so not effective behavior change and that's where it is it's circular or fluid that you can go from one to another and, and go back. There's, it's not permanent. There's not really permanency. You have to continue working on the behavior in a maintenance. So it's active. It's an active model thing. Even when you're in maintenance. So, for example, if you are a runner and you've been a runner since high school and you love running, you're probably, in, let's say you're an adult, So you're probably in a maintenance stage. This is a behavior that you've incorporated into your life. But if you wanted to work on your speed or lose some weight so that you could get faster or say you wanted to have a quicker recovery time. And so then you start troubleshooting behaviors to improve that behavior that's already a maintenance. Does that make sense? So so something current. In other words, I've just gone from pre-contemplation to contemplation of speed. Yep. So now you're going to start preparation, but it's a separate, you're probably going to choose a different behavior. So you may want to lose weight so that you can run faster, but you're still running. You're still maintaining that health behavior, but now you're going to prepare to improve another area or another behavior at the same time. Mm Mm-hmm. So, so knowing the, the, the label of, of where I'm at or where someone mm-hmm. else is at, uh, what kind of power uh, or advantage does, does that give us? So, so if I, if, is there a playbook for contemplation that's different from preparation? Do, you know, how, you know, is there a way to know, okay, preparation, I can check that box and move to action? How, 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 can, we, uh, how can we apply this to, to do it better? So I think that what you gain from knowing where you're at is insight. And so your example was wonderful that people might join a gym. But just joining the gym does not change your health or your outcomes. You have to use the gym or you have to engage in a new pattern of behavior. And so having insight and awareness helps you know what to do with this information. So it's fairly individualistic. And I think that 
there's not necessarily a prescriptive approach except for to say, what, what do you want to do with this information? And that's where it's put back on the individual. You're telling me that you want to be healthy and you've joined a gym, but you're not going. What do you want to do with that? And so, so leaving the opportunity for someone to explore that because it sounds like there's a disconnect in them pursuing their health behavior. So really they might not be in an action or preparation. They're, they're still in a contemplative stage. So they, they may have misjudged how far along they were, how close they were to getting to that action stage. I'm wondering if, if part of the issue is that we as healthcare professionals put people into the stage that we want them to be in rather than the stage they're actually in. So if I think about like learning guitar or some sort of hobby thing or going back to school for something, like I could see how I would totally go through these stages really naturally and fluidly and intelligently. But Mm -hmm. when it becomes something that I feel like there's some authority trying to get me to do, whether it's a real authority, whether it's my doctor telling me my cholesterol is too high and I need to go, mm-hmm. you know, change my diet and start running, or if it's me just feeling like there's some should, like, mm-hmm. is it that, is it that thing? Like some sort of either real or, uh, you know, internal authority figure that gets us out of sync with this natural progression? Hmm. So is your question why more people aren't able to go through this and be successful? I think, I think it's, it's, it's in certain domains. It feels like in, in sort of the health and lifestyle domain, people really screw this up. Like you look at New Year's so, resolutions but as, sure. opposed to, as opposed to things without so much sort of moral juice around them or an authority figure. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you my my personal belief is that no one is unhealthy because they want to be. I think it's super rare to interact with someone who enjoys being overweight, sedentary, taking medication, difficulty sleeping, having poor relationships. I don't think many people say that is a life I want for myself or that they would want for their children. And so I think when we look at approaching health behaviors and like you said, if someone, if a doctor were to say your cholesterol is high, you need to make a change. Well, there might be more contributing factors to why your cholesterol is high than just that you eat a poor diet. And sometimes I don't think we take enough time to evaluate how we got to who we are our life is made up of multiple experiences. And so if we're going to start trying to go after certain behaviors, there might be things underneath our emotional or mental awareness that we haven't interacted with in a long time. And so then that can be a a barrier. Can you give an example? Sure. Um, Let me think. So, Someone who is told they have high cholesterol, and so they have, they're asked to decrease their meat consumption. That's logical. Or they're asked to increase their fruit and vegetable consumption. 
and exercise. But they have recently lost their job or are experiencing a high amount of stress at work or there are a lot of cultural and emotional ties to the food that they eat. And they feel that by making these changes, the stress and difficulty to pursue the health behavior is harder and more difficult than taking the medication and just continuing with their lifestyle. They'll probably take the medication and or not care. Sometimes it's apathy. Sometimes people are just willing to accept the consequences of the disease and say, this is, I guess this is the way that it is for me. And there's a sense of apathy or feeling that there's not, it's not within their power to change this outcome. Right. I've, I've, recently I've worked with a number of people who presented with apathy like I was working with them and then they sort of fell off the face of the earth for a while from, mm. from my perspective. And yeah. when I got back in touch with them, their response was, you know, I guess I really don't care that much. I thought mm. I did, but I mm. really don't. And, and mm. like what I hear behind that is they care so much. Like apathy isn't a, a value free emotion. Apathy feels terrible. Right. And, it's because it's it's sort of it's not apathy. It's like you know um, those those exercises where you just like push your hands together like really mm-hmm. really hard. I forget what it's called. Um, you know where where it, you're actually exerting a huge amount of energy in both directions and not going anywhere. Yeah. yeah. And so it's it's not like apathy. It's it's kind of the opposite. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, and and I think. That is similar to ambivalence, where sometimes we have an understanding of ambivalence being an inability to make a decision, but really it means that there's strong emotional experiences happening and they're it's hard, they're almost contradicting, and so then we feel stuck. Yeah, yeah. Like am, I guess ambi ambi is like two two values colliding. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's not like it's not like wishy-washy. Right. Well, and I think that under maybe feelings of withdraw when when we withdraw or as as humans and we want we want to remove ourselves from things, typically that's motivated by by negative emotion. Rarely and especially in introverts, withdrawing can be a restorative thing. They need to recharge. But prolonged isolation and removing ourselves from something is because we're we're wanting to to get away. Um, and and at times that can be motivated by guilt and shame and a fear of being judged or a feel of fear of failure. And so when we when we interact with humans, we have to be mindful that there's a lot more going on than meets the surface. And I think that's what I love about my job and the opportunity to just learn about people and learn their stories. Because I think you said it well that sometimes healthcare professionals have an idea of what we're hopeful the outcome could be, but it doesn't always go that way. Right. And, and, and if we're under time pressure and if we feel like we have the degree and people should listen to us because we know, because we just read the studies, mm-hmm. um, 
it's it's easy to forget that there's this you know giant you know iceberg of emotion underneath <laughs> what we can say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. And motivation comes from different things. And so when we talk about behaviors, you may be motivated to change for all the right reasons, but still have difficulty. So, so I'm, I'm curious, um, because you work with, with people often in, in sort of mental health crisis, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, I work with people who are trying to change their diets and lifestyles and there's all, there's all these stressors. And they can have a bad week and, you know, they're, they have to work late or they had a, a stressful family gathering or, you know, or, or something else. And, you know, a child was sick and these okay. stressors can, can like predispose them to, quote, you know, fall off the wagon or relapse or make bad decisions. When you're working with people who are sort of clinically depressed or anxious uh, or, you know, have other sort of constellations of, of mental suffering – like, how do you help them eat better if they're already going through all this other stuff? Well, I think that's what I had to learn going through my training is that sometimes I don't get to do that when we're in crisis. Sometimes getting someone through the crisis is all I, I do. And I meet them where they're at. And I I'm always encouraging foundational health behaviors. So that's providing an environment for your body to rest, prioritizing sleep, because that's the only time we can really let our brains recharge, prioritizing eating healthy foods and increasing fresh fruits and veggies. Um, in crisis, it's not the time to say, hey, by the way, you should eat both meat, because they're not, they're not available for that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so validating them as an individual and their self-worth and their life. Because a lot of times for me, working with someone in crisis means that they don't want to be alive. And so I have to be working with someone who wants to be alive before I can work on what they want to eat or how they want to live. And so that was, that was um, a learned skill for me in knowing that that is still a valuable use of my education and time, even though I would love to be able to address all of it all at once. Sometimes it, it doesn't happen that way, and sometimes it does. And honestly, working with children, I do have the opportunity to educate parents and families. And so a lot of times we do get to have conversations about increasing family dinner time and everyone sitting down together or let's eat in more than we eat out. So it is a part of the conversation, but it's not always the, the number one or two topic that we talk about. So as what, far as what, being clear about what, what you're eating, if that makes sense. So, yeah. Yeah, we yeah, do but talk about lifestyle extensively and health behaviors and having, you know, meaningful relationships and all of those things. But as far as getting to get into the nitty gritty of plant-based nutrition, that's not always what I get to do in a crisis. Right. So are there things you do in a crisis that are lifestyle related and, you know, that they're not just 
you know, therapy or, or, yeah. or psychoactive meds? Yes. Oh, my goodness, yes. So I feel so fortunate because I work in an environment where we prioritize the, the person and their life experience. And so our kids are not only in individual therapy, but they're also in group therapy. And we have on staff, we have a recreational therapist, we have a child life specialist, and their jobs are to play and to make the kids feel like kids or adolescents. We do also have teenagers sometimes. Um, so I think that's really invaluable to, to reestablish some joy and just silliness in your life when you're a kid. And so we, we want to do that. And we also have an art therapist and our kids do art therapy and they get to do journal making and, and we encourage journaling and meditation and our recreational therapist and our art therapist lead that daily. Um, and so we also have a nutritionist on staff. So we do approach things from a very, I think, holistic perspective. And um, the hospital that I currently work in also has integrative medicine, which encourages aromatherapy as needed and if indicated and physical touch. So if that's, you know, a massage or um, when appropriate. So in pain management, we use a lot of integrative therapy, which that's not my specialty. But just speaking to looking at treatment, and it's not just medication or medication and talk therapy. We really do try and approach our treatment from a, we call it multimodal. So um, multiple modalities. That's beautiful. Mm-hmm. It's so fun. Think- and yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say it's fun. And sometimes I tell people I feel like I work at camp. And unfortunately, most of the people are really sad when they come in. But when they leave, it's pretty restorative. Um, and so I'm thankful for the, for the opportunity to do what I do. Right. So I'm, I'm curious because we, we were, you know, at Plantstock listening to a number of people tell stories that mm-hmm. had similar themes. And there's like, you know, Adam Sud who yes. was – Suffering from you know depression and drug addiction, mm-hmm. and just about every everybody, no matter how successful they were or how jolly they looked, all mm-hmm. the stories were when they were five hundred pounds and mm-hmm. addicted to to food and drugs, they were all really depressed. Mm-hmm. Sure. And I'm I'm wondering what you you know as as a professional in this world, what mm-hmm. what you heard in their stories that maybe I missed. Hmm. Okay. Well, I'll tell you, Adam's story is one of my favorite testimonies that includes reference to mental health. I know that a lot of individuals discuss their, their journey and, and the way that their mental health was affected. I think Adam does a really beautiful job. For anyone who hasn't heard his story, Adam said is on a few different podcasts, and I work with him on the engine two team at these immersions. And what I hear in, in especially his story is that therapy and medication were a tool that was used in his progression to healing. And there were seasons that he was not using them as prescribed. 
And so that led to some severe consequences. But during his recovery and becoming whole and well, he was on certain medications. And with his therapist and his psychiatrist was able to successfully come off of them. And he was one of the first individuals that I I interacted with in the plant-based world that acknowledged that that was a resource that they had interacted with. And so when I hear these stories from different individuals, I, I definitely listen with more of an empathetic, I think, approach than some because I don't think anyone who has a story that says I was 500 pounds or I was 300 pounds is proud of that. And I think that there's a lot of complex emotional and life experiences under there. And so I can't imagine what it's like to walk through not only the life up until that point, but then the transition back to a, you know, a different weight or a different life experience. Um, I don't know if I answered your question, but, but that's what came into my mind. Um, I treasure their, each of their stories. I think Joshua Johnny is another story that is just so transformative and he's so transparent and has a lot of humor in the way that he shares his experiences. And I think that's really um, invaluable to realize that, on some level, we're all experiencing difficulty in our relationship with food and or lifestyle, right? And we are pursuing this idea of health and wellness so that we can have a better quality of life. And so I'm really grateful for their willingness to share their story because I relate to some aspect of it. And that adds value to my life, and I think it's invaluable to others. So that is what I think about their stories. Gotcha. So I have one more question, which is something you said that has kind of been burrowing down in me, that people in crisis often don't want to be alive, and you have to get them to want to be alive first before you can, Mm -hmm. you know, have them make the changes that will enhance and prolong that life. Sure. What what, what do you see as the, the switch that flips when they go from not wanting to be alive to wanting to be alive? Like what, what has to happen? I don't even know how to ask the question if it's, <laughs> if it even makes sense, but, but it like, oh, good. So, <laughs> yeah, sure. Absolutely. So, so what I will say is it depends on the crisis. It depends on how I'm interacting with that person. So, so the statement of you have to want to be alive to work on your life makes sense theoretically, because if you're not alive, why do you care about what you eat or how you live? Um, so the switch is not the same for anyone, but, but what I will say is that by sharing hope and validating someone's life experience and their existence, you can, you can be an agent of change and, and give them the opportunity to consider the possibility of their life hurting less. And the suffering or whatever led to the crisis not lasting forever. And so I think for me, 
what I would say the switch is, is helping someone believe that our emotions are temporary and that even in the worst case scenario and the worst possible emotional experience, it's not going to last forever. And so if I can help facilitate a transition out of that and provide a safe space for you to process, of course, that's what I'm saying in our inpatient unit where it's a very supported unit. Um, there's the opportunity for that work to be done. And, and there, in our crisis stabilization unit, you're removed from a lot of stress. Your parents aren't there with you. Um, you don't have a cell phone. You know, it's very, very supportive and therapeutic environment. And so those types of treatment models exist throughout our country. And um, I can't speak for all of them, but that's also a treatment model for adult units as well. And so I have limited exposure to that as a new nurse and as a nursing student. And like I said, I started out in a surgical unit and then I went to the ER. And so discovering the opportunities in mental health to potentially prevent those poor outcomes later in life um, is really cool. And um, I just feel really privileged. And I think when I talk about what I do, it makes people feel uncomfortable because it's not, um, it's not well understood. And it is uncomfortable to know that people want to die or that they would consider harming themselves and those types of things. Um, but emotions are temporary and we have a lot of phenomenal resources and providers that want to help. And we have crisis text lines and the suicide hotline and all of those things um, where people can be connected with, with resources. So um, I would say the switch is finding hope and then being able to problem solve towards a different experience when you re-interact with your life outside of the crisis or outside of the hospital. Mm. And you know what, what I'm hearing, of course, is that you know children and adolescents have a lot less control over their environments than yeah. adults. And sure. And and so you know if you're an adult who's listening to this and you're feeling sort of depressed or in crisis, you don't necessarily have to check yourself into a facility, but you know you can put away your own cell phone, right? You can you can <laughs> sure. go find a community. To in, in which people are trained and predisposed to validate rather than judge and, mm-hmm. and, and grade and, and evaluate, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. that we, we all can, you know, ideally we live in a society in which like every interaction every day is like your unit where people are, you know, playful and generous and skilled and helping us understand that, that negative emotions are temporary and the sun's going to shine again one day. Sure. Uh, but as you know, we the, like that's that's a model. I think what I'm hearing from you is that th- this is sort of a model. Not it's not it's not the same as like the ER where right. exactly you know this so this is the way society should be. Feeling exactly sure. Well, I'll tell you, I think that's what people experience at these immersions when I'm at Engine Two and we're validating your existence. And people are asking you questions each day and you're getting to dance and play and think about yourself and learn about yourself and, and reconnect with value and meaning in your own life. And then, and then with others. So 
I think it's easy to forget that we're relational beings and, and sometimes when life is really difficult and challenging, it's not always comfortable. Like you said, people withdraw. Um, and so having the courage to re-engage and, or reach out to sometimes it is professional. Sometimes you do need professional help, but having meaningful relationships and hobbies and things in your life goes a long way. I don't think we could ever um, overstate that. Yeah, I was just listening yeah. to, to, to a podcast interview with uh, Emily Esfahani Smith, who, right, who just wrote a book, I think, called The Power of Meaning, uh, my friend mm-hmm. Peter Bregman's podcast. And she was saying, like, one of the pillars of a meaningful life is belonging. And she defined mm-hmm. that as being accepted for who you are without right. having to kind of jump through hoops. And when I think about it, like most people I know have very little experience in over, you know, ever maybe uh, with, mm. with being, with belonging. And it sounds mm-hmm. like one of the things you're creating in these units is a sort of a real bubble in which it's safe, in which people do feel like they belong no matter what they bring, what they present sure. or what, what inner demons they decide to share and let out. Right. That's our hope. That's that's, that's a, a beautiful vision. Um, Thanks. Any anything I didn't ask that I should have? Hmm. I don't. I don't think so. I I enjoyed our conversation. Oh, good. That's that's the goal. <laughs> uh, I try. I try not to torture my guests. <laughs> that's great. So, so Elizabeth Winings, um, thank you so much for for taking the time and, and sharing your your beautiful perspective and uh, and spirit. If is there, do you have like a, a website or presence, or is there a way for people to follow you, or are you just going to sort of sure. you know duck back into into uh, nursing practice? What, what what have you got for people who want to stay in touch? Well, I am on Facebook, Dr. Elizabeth Winings. And you can follow my page. I'm also on Instagram, Elizabeth.Winings. Okay, and spell your last name. Yes, my last name is W-I-N-I-N-G-S. And then come to Plant Stock. Come to Engine 2 events. Um, that I'm, I'm there. And I have the privilege of being a part of that team. And I think it is really... Um, phenomenal group of people trying to to change lives and um, help people have fun and be healthy and spread plant-based nutrition so that that's where I'm at on social media and out in the world awesome and I'll include links in the show notes for for this episode wonderful thank you so much yeah Dr. Elizabeth Winings thank you so much for taking the time and for Mm -hmm being a guest, and I hope we talk again soon. Me too. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed this episode of the Plant Yourself podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. For more information about the Big Change Program led by me and Josh Lajani, visit bigchangeprogram.com. And be sure to check out the show notes for everything we talked about, including the links at plantyourself.com slash 242. If you're new to the show, you can catch up on 241 archived episodes over at plantyourself.com. 
And if you get the podcast but not the newsletter, The Big Change Bulldog, you can sign up and get the Cheat Day Blues Report at plantyourself.com slash cheat day. In garden news, we uh, get into the 60s in the afternoons, even though it's in the low 30s in the morning. So we are uh, dressing and undressing the garden beds like uh, like toddlers in the in the winter, taking off their uh, row covers and then putting them back on in the evenings, getting some kale. And we got two beautiful turnips, which uh, I suppose we're going to put into a stew at some point. In running news, I'm back on a program. I'm doing the Galloway for the second year. This time I'm going to be a little bit smarter about it. And I will see if I can manage the 3.30 marathon pace for all these runs or if I need to uh, bring it back down and give myself a couple more years. All right, big thanks to Will Ridenauer for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Don, The Dance of Peace. Check out willridenauer.com for more of his gorgeous chora music. And, of course, thank you to all you Plant Yourself podcast patrons, as in... Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Mara, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hadley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Burns, Christine Dilson, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jennifer Kanowski, David Isaac, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elizabeth Feldman, Victoria Dolan, Obelia Stroller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Andrew, Josina, Julianne Rowland, Stu Dolnick, Sarah Durkis, Ryan Circus, Sally Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Leanne Peterson, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Franzek, Jeanette Benham, Gila, Sarah David, Donahue, Blair Cyber, Toro, Nabizo, Pio, and Carolyn Architati, Jody Friesen, Ruth Ann Thunderbrook, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck, the equally mysterious Tracy Z, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lindman, Rhymes with <gasps> Nick Harper, Stephanie Holmes, Martha Bergner, Nicole Ramsey, Susan Ahmad, Molly Levine, the inscrutable Harry R. Sarah, Sarah Susan Laverty, the Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Sharp, Catherine, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Ashley Corcoran, Kelly Machia, Deanne Norton, Bonnie Lynch, and Plant Happy Oregon, Sabine Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blunt, Teresa Copel, Shell Rutledge, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Brian Sheridan, Shannon Hirschman, Kate Rolls, Linda Ayat, Julie Lang, Holm Hedegaard, Isa Tuzinwa, Colleen Hayne, oh, just four more. I couldn't do it. Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, and new this week, Aviva Lael. Thank you guys so much. It's nice to be able to slow down a little bit and thank the new folks properly for all of your generous support of the podcast. Oh, and thanks to my buddy Gio Argentati for fixing my boom mic. So if you can hear me, thank Gio. And that's it for this week. As always, be well, my friends. <laughs>